Hello, and welcome to the Two Friends from College podcast. I'm Daniel. And I'm Matt. We use the podcast to discuss a wide variety of topics and encourage you to join us in the conversation. You can contact us on our Instagram page, Two Friends from College. Please feel free to message us there to suggest future topics or just to let us know what you thought about today's episode. Let's get started. All right, welcome to the podcast. We're going to be talking about UBI or Universal Basic Income this week. So to kick it off, what is UBI? UBI is basically where a government would provide a basic income, maybe not a living wage, but a sustainable amount of money to allow every citizen to have a safety net. I think Matt and I are kind of aligned on our opinions here, but to kick it off, Matt, do you have anything you would add to what UBI is, or I'm kind of curious about what if your perspective is any different on what UBI is? For me, UBI is that baseline amount of money that can help individuals stay afloat, especially as the jobs are changing and there's more automation, different types of jobs are you know, leaving the market. The ability for a government to help provide a basic amount of income in order to help supplement jobs uh, that are lost, but also to help kind of increase the living conditions and basic health for a community or population. So my thought on what forms UBI can take, I also kind of lump in universal basic healthcare in with UBI. So that's why I think of that as maybe like another form of basic income. Matt and I both live in the U.S., so universal basic income was a big part of the Democratic primary as Andrew Yang pretty much ran on that platform. But I also kind of think that universal basic health care is almost a form of universal basic income because when people lose their job, as you just mentioned, that's one of their most vulnerable times, not only from a financial income standpoint, but also from a healthcare standpoint, because healthcare is incredibly expensive in the U.S. If you were to have some sort of issue when you were between, between jobs and without healthcare, being able to have just basic healthcare coverage or access to healthcare, I see as a form of UBI as well, because what it costs for healthcare is probably exceeds what most proposals for UBI are in the United States anyway. Yeah, I know Andrew Yang was talking about like a thousand dollars a month type amount. I know different countries have experimented with other amounts and you're right, it's definitely not something that you'd be able to live off per se, but it is that safety net that can help individuals similar to the other safety net programs out there, right? I mean at this point a lot of people think this idea of socialism is this kind of extreme crazy thing where the government is providing these services, but when we think about it healthcare, social security, retirement, pensions. I mean, there's lots of different things out there already that are in the same vein and along the same lines as UBI, at least from my kind of how I see it. So I think Matt and I are both very pro UBI. So we're not going to have a uh, combative discussion about this, but rather than kick right into our perspectives on it, maybe this would be a good spot to talk about maybe some of the potential downsides 
Yeah, I think one of the things that comes up a lot is the idea that if someone is given some sort of money, um, then they won't be working and they're not going to actually, it won't incentivize them to get a real job and to contribute to the economy. And this is, I think, is a talking point that a lot of people are concerned about when it comes to this idea of social welfare programs or universal basic income. I think one of the things that is kind of a, a difference in terms of how I look at money provided to individuals versus how some people do is when individuals are given money, they're going to spend that money and that's going to affect the entire economy. And I think that there's this kind of viewpoint for a lot of people that the idea of economic idea that maybe putting the money at the bottom of the of the table where the lower income earners have it as opposed to giving money to kind of the higher end of the table with corporations and things like that. There's two different ways to go about building and growing an economy. For me, as someone who really does believe that if the money comes in to those lower income individuals, that's a great way for the entire economy to build. So I think that's where you get a lot of pushback, at least what I've heard, is this idea that A, money come from the bottom versus money from the top does not necessarily stimulate the economy as much, as well as if people are getting money, they're not going to be incentivized to still get jobs and still spend and still be a contributing member of the economy. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm fortunate enough to be in a situation where I have savings and disposable income. And if you gave me a thousand dollars right now, I wouldn't do anything with it because there's nothing that that I currently can't pursue because of a thousand dollars. If you give a thousand dollars to someone in a less economically advantageous position, you're right, they're going to spend it. And that money is also going to go into the economy, not just once, but multiple times, right? Like that money is going to go, you know, uh, a grocery store, and then that money is going to get paid out to someone who works at the grocery store. And like, there's just a lot of examples about how if you give money at the top, it's going to go into their stock portfolio, and then it's just going to sit in the stock portfolio. Um, and maybe that's good for the stock market. But if you give money to the bottom, then that money is going to circulate throughout the economy um, and get spent multiple times over. So I would definitely agree with that. And I know there are different models as well, where individuals that are high earners will potentially not either get a universal basic income or will get less universal basic income so that it is kind of bracketed so that individuals that are going to be spending it and going to be kind of using it will actually be able to obtain it. And then someone, you know, like you were talking about how maybe your money, if you were to, to get money from the government, similar to how the coronavirus stimulus checks, the government gave a hundred or $1,200 in hopes to that it would then go back into the economy. Someone who doesn't need that money and it's just going to go into their savings, one model of universal basic income would be, would say that those types of earners wouldn't be receiving the universal basic income or would be receiving less, depending on kind of how that model would work. Yeah. To me as well, it's shocking that there are so many people that don't, in the United States, that don't have savings. I mean, some of the statistics about the number of people that if they were to Go, all of a sudden have a car repair that cost what a couple thousand dollars they would go you know not be able to afford that or they would go bankrupt or the lack of kind of savings is to me fairly 
you know, surprising for a country that does have such a growing economy and people that make a lot of money, especially compared to other places. I know for for me, that idea of saving and budgeting has been really, you know, important, and especially like for my for my family. And so I've always really valued that. But the fact that so many people either are not able to because of their jobs and because of the expenses they have, because of debts, because of you know, college because of children or the fact that they just they don't have the financial lit- literacy to understand the whole saving piece. I don't know the exact number, but it's a very high number of people that don't have that safety net. Yeah, I think that was Forbes. I actually just Googled it. It says 63 percent of Americans don't have enough savings to cover a five hundred dollar emergency. Th- that would mean that that money, if they were to get five hundred dollars a month, they're going to be using that and spending it and 60% of individuals right back into the economy, helping them and their standard of living, but also growing the economy. And that statistic, which I think has gotten a lot of traction, is actually something that I'll bring up later on in this podcast as I advocate for something else regarding UBI. But the other point that you brought up was that there's this that there's been this talking point or this sense that if we give some people basic income, they're just going to be incentivized not to work. And there's two things to that. One is that no one's talking about giving people enough money that they could like comfortably live a lifestyle. We're talking about giving people enough money that they won't starve month to month. Current state, that's where the conversation lies. And if there is someone who can take that money and stretch it to an extreme degree, I'm not really concerned about that. Like I the the second piece is that I just I think that's really reductive for a lot of people. I think that all of us have a desire to make more of ourselves and and provide more for our families. And I think that that perspective that there's just a significant portion of the population that's going to sit back and just kick their feet up on a thousand dollars a month is just absurd. And realistically, the people that are abusing. The system are already abusing that system with unemployment and Medicare, Medicaid. With If someone wants to game the system, there's other ways that they can do it. And this is not going to create this new group of individuals that are... Also, I know that different places have actually tried some of this universal basic income. And I know they're in Canada, I was reading something that both in Ontario and Manitoba, they had like kind of tests where they did this for like multiple years and were providing that kind of basic income and they didn't see any drop in the number of jobs that people had. People were still still employed. They were able to get, you know, more education, get better jobs, not have to live on basic wages. They could have jobs that had better rights. It doesn't seem in practice to lead to individuals not working, which I think is a fear that a lot of people have. I would agree. So the biggest negative that actually resonated with me was the concentration of political power. So one of the things you just mentioned was that current state, there are a lot of social welfare systems. There is welfare, there's food stamps, there's there's a variety of different ways where you can get government assistance. And one of the things that is typically advocated for in a universal basic income is that there are a lot of different complicated independent systems that are bloated and have their own bureaucracies and spend tied to maintaining those systems. 
And one of the advantages of a universal basic income is you could actually wipe out a ton of those systems. You could eliminate all this bureaucracy on top of them, and you could just replace them. Maybe not all and maybe not immediately, because there are some people that might be receiving more than the proposed UBI assistance. But in general, one of the positives is that you could replace all these bloated bureaucracies with just one universal basic income that would basically match or meet all these other government assistance programs to a degree. And then therefore, it actually would save you a lot of money in terms of government spend. Nowhere near what you would actually spend on UBI, but to a degree, it would just be a far more consistent, clear, simple program. And one of the problems that I've heard with that that actually does make a lot of sense is that you consolidate so much political power. For example, if there's a candidate you know, running for president that said that they were going to overhaul and revamp the food stamp program or the welfare program or social security or each one of those would be just an incredible fight and take years of you know, political influence to do. But if you consolidated that all into UBI, imagine someone running on the platform of, I'll increase everyone's UBI from $1,000 a month to $1,400 a month. And if all that's centralized in one program, you could see how that, that one statement or one political platform could just have a massive influence and just the ability to sort of wield so much power with, with one program that would affect so many people. So I found that argument interesting. I can see that, but it also becomes a lot more transparent as well, right? If there's kind of this one program, and again, not every UBI type system would say eliminate Social Security, eliminate food stamps, eliminate all of these. But I would see it if there is one clear amount of money that helps provide these kind of services, um, it would be a lot more transparent as opposed to you know, oh, I want to change food stamps. I want to change this other piece. That can there's all the bureaucracy and makes it hard to access all of that. I could see um, a clearer, transparent process being easier for individuals to understand if someone were to try to make those changes. Does that make sense? That does make sense. I like I do like the clear and transparent. It makes me think of um, I can't remember the country, but there's some country that each year with your tax return, they actually send you like a bar graph and it shows you like how much money you made, how much money you paid in taxes, and then it actually breaks down the percentages of where your taxes went. And it says like this much went to military spend, this much meant to social programs. Like it actually buckets it out, which I think is very transparent and would also help guide maybe your your political positions and as you look at how many thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars went to X program and you're thinking to yourself, does that program need that much <laughs> of my dollars each year? It's funny, that actual um, proposal has uh, come up in the United States a couple of times. Um, from what I understand, it's been proposed by Democrats and the Republicans have always shot it down in terms of giving that, that simple snapshot to the American people. As to why, presumably, it's maybe because of our military spending. Everyone's pro-military, but when you actually see how much we spend there. Um, but the biggest chunk of our spend is absolutely, overwhelmingly on entitlements. So Social Security being the massive chunk of that. 
I've actually always thought it'd be really interesting if Congress were to budget X amount, like they 80% of the budget was something that Congress actually budgeted and 20% was left up to taxpayers. So at the end of the year, you'd be able to say, I want of my amount of money that I can choose, I want all of it to be moving towards military or I would like most of my money to go towards, again, you'd only, you'd have like what, five choices or something. You wouldn't be able to just give it to whatever you want, but allowing the the taxpayer to have some ability to say what I want my money to go to. I've always thought that'd be super cool. Again, I don't, I don't know if that will ever happen. I doubt it will. Um, but I, I thought about it because in Italy, part of your money goes to, part of your taxes go to a religion, a religious group. So most everyone, it goes to the Catholic church, but you're able to actually choose, oh, I actually would like it to go to a different religion, or I'd like it to go just back to the government itself and not to a religion if you're not religious. And so that idea of being able to say, oh, I want part of my taxes to go to something that I'm associated with or I connect with, I've always thought would be super cool. I know it's a little off the whole UBI thing, but I've always been a fan. I love that idea. That's actually, <laughs> that's a, I mean, I got excited just hearing that idea. I think that's super cool. I mean, you also would feel really engaged and connected with your government yeah yeah i'm for it matt can you what what uh social movement can i follow or promote to make that happen and if there isn't one please start it i'll work on it 2024 presidential run all right so from here i'm curious just kind of your general take on ubi for me i think that the social returns are super high so when it comes to in individuals having additional money will help the healthcare system and decrease costs there, child and family services, decrease costs there, our justice system. I mean, if individuals are given a this kind of stipend, this, you know, let's just say $1,000 a month, how would that affect the criminality? How would that affect being able to raise children in not in poverty? How would it be able to affect actually going to a doctor as opposed to going to the emergency room or paying for health care? These kind of social returns, I think, are super high and really important. So generally speaking, when it comes to things that are going to impact the society as a group, especially as we're one of you know the most powerful and most economically prosperous countries in the world, why can we not do more to keep our communities out of poverty and out of jail and out of you know the hospital to me that's a huge in a huge benefit when it comes to this universal basic income i would agree with you there and that's why i also mentioned you know basic health care as like a component of this we were talking about the statistic you know the 63 percent of people are not prepared for i think it was 400 um i've heard 500 a lot um unexpected expense but that's another thing too like there's a percentage of people filing for personal bankruptcy because of our health care costs is extremely high i think it's something like you know above 60 percent of people and so that's why i definitely agree that not only would giving people a stipend um, but also kind of removing the most exorbitant unexpected cost which is health care would go a long way to having a big social impact. I think, number one, you would remove crimes of desperation. 
you know, people who are stealing or feel that they need to because they're not sure where the next meal is coming from. Like I've got a lot of empathy there because I've got a family and I, I can't imagine being in a situation. Luckily I have, you know, family and support structures where I just, I don't think that's an option that I would ever come to. Like there's people that would take me in and provide for me before I ever had to get to that point. I'm, I'm very fortunate, but there's a lot of people who don't have those personal safety nets. And so to provide them with some sort of safety net that's guaranteed, I think you remove that. I don't, I don't know that everyone results to that, but just removing that in general, I think is just, I feel like it's the humane. It's the, the right thing to do to provide that, that basic level of support for people. So yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. The other thing, not just providing that basic level of support, but I think that universal basic income can really help individuals um, achieve that American dream. And I think that that's something that we talk about in the United States, about being able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, all that jazz. But if you have that additional money, you're able to take some risks and try to start a business. You're able to get a, a better education and not have to you know, do a lower paid job. It gives you the opportunity, I feel, to grow and the freedom to make choices uh, for yourself rather than just because of your financial situation. Now, again, $1,000 a month, is that going to change someone's life entirely? Potentially not. Potentially, yes. But it does give that individual who doesn't have the opportunity more freedom I would agree. There is a lot of conversation about retraining that comes up when there's a particular labor category or there's a massive unemployment, you know, because of a shift in the economy that we didn't expect, similar to what we're going through in a, a pandemic and the, uh, the relief that we were talking about earlier. And a lot of times people say, well, those people will go get better jobs, you know, and, and there's a lot of these retraining programs, but there's a gap. <laughs> If these people can go get retrained to get some of these other good paying jobs, which there's a lot of debate on it, how accessible those new jobs are. Are they in the same geographic location? Are they jobs that a logger or, a, you know, a forklift driver or a, you know, a long haul trucker can go out and get even with some training? But what about the gap in time? If 60 plus percent of Americans can't afford a $400 unexpected expense, then how are they going to go several weeks or months while they're getting retrained for a new job? So I would completely agree there. Here's a take that I have on UBI in general. I'm going to make the argument that UBI or socialism or a form of it actually supports capitalism. Because I believe that capitalism is the greatest economic driver that we have seen in, in human history for advancements and innovations. I've got nothing against capitalism. I'm not arguing for socialism over capitalism. Capitalism has produced some of the most incredible products and services and advancements and economic explosions in our lifetime. Like, thumbs up for capitalism. <laughs> Capitalism does have some side effects that are not ideal. However, when I hear people argue for capitalism, pure capitalism, right? The market will decide. When they're arguing for capitalism in theory, they're talking about it as if everyone has perfect choice, right? Like capitalism 
drives prices down, competition is good, it forces companies to innovate and provide products cheaper and faster and better. In theory, that makes a lot of sense, but that kind of takes place theoretically in a perfect environment. In practice, it just doesn't work out that well. For one example, what do companies typically not want? Competition, like that's the big driver in capitalism. But then there's, you know, large companies are going to buy up lots of small little companies that are that they're worried might eventually compete with them. And so that's why we have antitrust laws. And that's why we have, we haven't done a lot of this recently, but we break up monopolies because we're trying to encourage capitalism we're trying to encourage competition and we're not trying and we're trying to prevent the undermining of the core principles of capitalism right so we're already decided that there are aspects of capitalism pure capitalism that in practice that we're willing to regulate so that the system continues to work well so on the other end of the system like that's large giant consolidated companies we're on the other side of the system the individual side of it Capitalism states that if another company down the road or the next town over decides to start paying a dollar an hour more, then everyone will go work there. And if the current company pays $2 more, then everyone will come back. And that'll keep happening until the market decides like, hey, here's a fair rate. The problem with that is 63% of Americans can't afford a $400 unexpected expense. So if a company opens up a town over, those people don't have the financial means to go get that job. They can't relocate. They they don't have the financial freedom to potentially take a week off of work between jobs. They don't have the financial freedom to rent a U-Haul and relocate, you know, their family for that job that pays a little bit more. You could argue, yeah, sure, they could take out a loan or or something like that. But the other statistic is that most Americans are living in so much debt that they couldn't really take out a loan or they're max, you know, they're maxing out their credit cards. So my take on this is that if you the whole point of capitalism is that there's freedom of choice. Everyone has the ability to go spend their dollar where they want to. They get to sell their time where they want to. But I would argue that a lot of Americans are constrained and don't actually have the freedom to pick up and move or the ability to decide where to spend their dollar and and where to sell their time. Um, and if you a UBI would actually give everyone that financial freedom, that freedom of choice, that ability to survive for a moment while they go seek out a better paying job. And I actually think it would support capitalism. Yeah, I think that that is very true. That idea of giving people freedom to that they don't have at this point in time. And again, UBI is not going to solve all of these problems. It's not going to make everyone have an equal playing field that they can compete and grow. But it does seem like a really important step for any for any society or community that that have that as a possibility. All right, so we're on the same page there. So a, a different direction in regards to UBI is in automation. Andrew Wang definitely made this point uh, clear during his presidential run. His argument was that a large portion of people are going to be are going to become unemployed just through automation alone, that a lot of jobs are just going to start drying up and they're not the argument for a long time has always been that we are going to replace 
jobs with better jobs. But he's kind of making the argument that the replacement rate of jobs is going to drastically decrease with automation at some point in the future. And I would agree with this. There was a video that I think was maybe one of the most succinct videos um, that I've ever seen in sort of describing this. It was called Humans Need Not Apply by CGP Gray. I would definitely recommend watching it on YouTube, you, Matt, or anyone else listening to this podcast. He makes a comparison to horses before cars were invented. He talks about the horse population and how in demand they were, but then when automobiles became suddenly readily available and widely used and they were better, faster, cheaper, horses just became obsolete. And the argument is that at some point humans, through a a massive process, may become obsolete through no fault of their own, similar to horses. They're just no longer employable at the scale that they were. And I do think that this is a realistic possibility. I don't think that it's as imminent as maybe Andrew Yang was making it out to be, but I do think we will see this in our lifetime. For example, the largest labor category that the United States tracks is transportation. So that's 18-wheelers and taxi drivers and everything you can think of. It's like 18, maybe 19 million people right now. And there is a decent argument that over the next 10 to 15 years, that labor category could be almost entirely or substantially replaced by self-driving vehicles. Tesla's working on self-driving 18-wheelers. You could only imagine the cost savings that when that gets approved, 18-wheeler drivers have limitations on how long that they can drive for. There's insurance coverage because they make mistakes, they get tired, they you know cause accidents. Insurance would drop. You'd be able to run the vehicles as long as the engines could run for. It'd be far more efficient. I think a lot of us would choose self-driving cars once it's proven and safe. That could very well be a labor category that could be largely wiped out. And imagine even if... 50% of it was wiped out over the course of 10 years. It's going to be really hard to figure out how to put 10 million people into different jobs. I actually think that that's a, that's a realistic discussion that we have to have because that might be one specific situation. But if you apply that towards larger categories, there's a lot of jobs like with uh, voice recognition technology, Apple and Google have rolled out assistance where they can make hair appointments for you and carry on conversations on the phone. Like there are a lot of administrative roles that are becoming more and more obsolete. And I actually do think that at some point in the future, we may reach a point where automation gets rid of so many customer service level roles that we may actually see a point where there's a portion of the population that cannot work not because they don't want to or they're too lazy but there just aren't as many jobs as there are people in the population yeah and at that point we'd have to start even thinking about how universal basic income would have to be scaled up our initial part of our conversation where we're thinking about kind of this basic safety net amount that's kind of one level but when you think about trying to give someone the income that they have or that they normally would live at 
because there are no more jobs available for them. That's like a whole nother level and step up. Hopefully, this, having these conversations now can start us on that process because I agree that we're going to need to probably talk about that at some point, probably sooner rather than later. I think one great example as well is with Amazon and brick and mortar stores. I mean, there's no there's no need for all of these stores because most people are doing their shopping online. And as this continues, just like you talked about transportation, with administrative jobs, it's going to be something that we'll have to figure out a way to deal with. But the first step has to be kind of creating that system, which seems to me that now is the time to start laying down that groundwork and creating that system. This is definitely a leap from like a more objective conversation. However, I was thinking about this, that if you think about like futuristic movies, they're typically either like a dystopian future or they're like some sort of amazing utopia. And I actually do kind of relate that to whether or not we build out some sort of basic income infrastructure, because in the dystopian future, it's typically the haves and the have nots. Power and wealth is highly consolidated, which we're already seeing a trend in that direction. You know, the wealthiest are holding more and more of the nation's wealth and the percentage of the population living paycheck to paycheck and holding almost no wealth whatsoever is is growing. And then the utopia. The utopia is a situation where like robots and automations have made so many roles obsolete and more and more people are living like free independent lives but how do they do that without an income so i also kind of think about this in the terms of a post-economic system again i don't think this is very near term but at some point if we agree maybe this won't happen but if we hypothetically agree that in some point automation takes over a massive portion of jobs let's say 75 percent of of jobs are automated and there really isn't much in the way of replacement what do you do in that situation we could live in an economic system where we have a safety net for three quarters of the population or do we have like some sort of next level system that's definitely getting like way off the path of the ubi conversation but i think real long term in terms of what does the future look like 100 200 years in the future you do think that a lot going on around us will be automated and if you kind of backtrack from there like if you see a utopia how do we get there how do we support people in a scenario where most of the jobs are gone and they're not readily replaced i didn't really leave you much room to go anywhere with that did i no i'm but I'm all I'm all for it. I'm I'm totally on board. Our utopian society starts with being able to support our communities, and uh, yeah. And the only other thing that I think that uh, it's so timely to have this discussion is because we're always talking about reforming our different systems we have, reforming our social security system, the current way that we do things with supporting our elderly populations, our dis- disabled populations, our uh, out-of-work populations, that whole system has to be reformed fairly soon. And that's why I think that this idea of universal basic income makes so much sense to be having at this time, not only because this future utopia that, Dan, you were talking about, but in the here and now, reform has to be made. How can we do it best? And this is a really interesting topic that a lot of different countries are lo- looking at. And I see that... Uh, 
continuing to be an important conversation moving forward. Outside of the, uh, the sci-fi future, when you do look down the line, I think that there does need to be some sort of preparation for the, the potential that we may hit some sort of tipping point where there is a massive job loss. And maybe it's something that recovers and we just need to cover it in the meantime, similar to a pandemic that we're going through right now. This has definitely exposed the fact that we don't have a safety net for a lot of people that don't know how to make ends meet right now. Or a situation where there's not a recovery in the future, where a vaccine will solve the problem, where self-driving cars and and there, there's just no real transportation industry, or there's not uh, an industry like transportation that needs humans to a large degree, where you know you could see a massive portion of people go unemployed and then just no other jobs for them. So I I agree that. I think we should be preparing for those sort of future situations and in its simplest terms, preparing for the next pandemic and what do we do in that situation. But the other piece of it, which you just hit on, is I just think of this from a humanities standpoint. Like the argument that some people will take advantage of the system and freeload is always going to be there. But I don't see that as a large percentage i see that as a pretty small percentage and sure we should try and prevent that from happening but i see that as a small necessary evil to the much larger greater good of supporting elderly disabled people who are out of work through no fault of their own i just think it's the humane thing to do to support each other in those times and and provide safety nets for those people and i think the the pure capitalist theory that the market will correct does not play favorably for people who are in a bad situation. The market sort of says that those people are expendable, and I just don't think that's the the right take on it. We need some sort of social safety net system that doesn't leave people in dire situations. Well, that is a good place to end it. You and I are very aligned on this topic. So if we have any followers or listeners at this point, um, I do invite you to message us on our Instagram page and let us know your opinions here. We'd certainly be interested if you guys have a different take or something that we haven't thought of, but I'm also very genuinely interested in opposition. If you guys feel like we've glossed over this or or haven't examined a side of it or there's there's some missing piece, love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please come back or tell someone about it. Give us feedback or message us on our Instagram page, Two Friends from College. Feel free to suggest future topics or let us know what you thought of today's episode. We hope you will join us again. Later.